Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Eastern European Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today I'm with Till Hilmar, and we'll be talking about his new book, Deserved, Economic Memories After the Fall of the Iron Curtain, which was published by Columbia University Press in 2023. Welcome, Till. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to have you here. So just a little background on Dr. Hilmar before we begin. He received his PhD in sociology from Yale University in 2019 and is currently a postdoctoral researcher at the Department of Sociology at the University of Vienna. His research interests include cultural and political sociology, social memory, post-1989 transformations, and computational social science. So Till, can you tell our listeners how you came to write this book? Yes, sure. So, um... I am from Vienna, which uh, is a city to the east of Prague. And um, so famously, there's a story about Vienna that you can hear all kinds of Slavic languages when you're on a, on a tram in the city. Um, but when I grew up there, so it was still very much oriented to the, oriented to the West. So it was kind of also ignoring and downplaying its Central Eastern European composition in terms of the cultural hierarchies in the city. So for instance, when I went to school there, it was clear like people who were actually doing the cooking or uh, the cleaning of my school were all from like speaking Polish, Czech, Slovak, and so on. And so in a way, um, that was kind of a formative experience. And I developed an interest in, well, in Central Eastern Europe and in the post-1989 in the transformation period, the transformation from... Uh, state socialism to market societies, and I was able to do a PhD in sociology, and that sociology is this wonderful combination uh, where you're able to do empirical research, but also construct theory around it. And so more and more, I gained this impression that this period in history, the post-1989 period, is an exciting terrain for sociological theory. 
because it's full of events, um, shifts in personal and also societal um, histories. And so, um, so it's an exciting period. And actually, that is also a sentiment that the people I talk to for this book very much share. So the sense of excitement about this, this time in history. Yes. Yeah, and I really enjoyed uh, reading the reflections uh, of your respondents. They're really rich. And of course, as an oral historian, I really appreciate that you included the voices of ordinary individuals. So you focus on the Czech Republic uh, and East Germany, uh, the former East Germany in your book. So why did you choose these two case studies? So I think a first reason for me to, well, being a German-speaking scholar, um, German is my native language, so I, I care about not just focusing on Germany here because discussions in Germany can often be quite self-centered. And I think it's really important to view the the German, the East German experience in the context of the Central European transformation experience. So uh, that is, I think, one major reason for choosing, like, to do a comparative study. And second, um, so when I came up with this idea of doing this uh, this research, I was inspired by the work of Klaus Offer, a political scientist and theorist who who worked on uh, Czechoslovakia and and the GDR. And he pointed out, for instance, like an intriguing set of observations about these two cases. So, so he he portrayed them as kind of the model socialist societies with highly developed industrial societies, near full employment, strong working class traditions in these industrial heartlands at, along the River Elbe. And so these historical similarities are strong and interesting. Um, and I kind of discussed, well, I, I used them for, for, for making this argument that it's interesting to look at how different the experience of the 90s then uh, kind of played out in these two cases against the background of a rather similar, um, basically, structure of society before 1989 in these two cases. And so in the 90s were really different. So just to sum it up very briefly, so in the East German case, we saw a shock of uh, both in terms of the the labor market change, which was a radical rupture, very high numbers of unemployment, but also in terms of sim the symbolic changes. So to East, East German identities were very much challenged. And then in the Czech or Czechoslovak and then Czech case, we, we see rather a story of a lot of continuity comparably, also to, compared to Poland, for instance. So in terms of employment and also in terms of the narrative about the transformation itself was was very much kind of based on this idea of of of, of economic nationalism, which we already saw also in in the late socialist period. I'm wondering maybe if you could uh, comment on what happens then to these two countries, regions. So obviously, mm. um, the trajectory of East Germany is different than the Czech Republic. You have, in one case, integration, and in another case, a rupture, right, from, mm. from how these uh, countries look during the communist period. So how does it affect their trajectories then in, in the 90s and later? Yes, so um, absolutely. I mean, so yes, so this is one case that, I mean, literally, these are family metaphors, even for the German case. It's the metaphor of a uh, like a marriage, right? And that kind of reunification. Uh, and then in the in the Czechoslovak case, it's a divorce. Um, so these are very different trajectories. 
Um, and so the way, I mean, so the, this is this is of course so in a way the the problem of of nationhood very much in the back also of my book here of this comparison, in the sense that East Germans are kind of struggling to be part of the German nation under the conditions, of course, as we know of a West German, basically um, a West German constitution that was basically imposed on East Germans. Um, whereas for Czechs becoming a nation in 19, in the beginning of 1993 was of course a very different experience but also what what i'm what i'm looking at in this in this book really is the the level of of the of the the way this is um narrated and the the level of narratives about the transformation period and here i'm particularly interested in how let's say so what i call economic memories are this idea that that people have like a certain well a certain historical pride in in their economic achievements also during socialist period and then uh, this is kind of a resource that they kind of carry into the 90s and the conditions for for doing so are much better in a way in the Czech case because there is, um, as I said, there is basically a very positive narrative about Czechs being sort of this kind of male productive labor force, um, uh, whereas in the East German case we find a very different ways in which elites, West German elites, talk about East Germans. So they're often portrayed as kind of unproductive and, and, and lazy. And so there are all these problems with the East German economy. So that is that those those narratives about the economic transformation are very different. And I think that they are also an important part of becoming part of that new nation in the 90s, basically, in each case. Yeah, and to continue that um, family metaphor in a way, you know, the Czech case, it's kind of casting off the burdensome child or family member who's leeching off you, right, economically, whereas mm -hmm. in the West Germans uh, perceive East Germans as, oh, having to take in this burdensome family member, right, who's yes. um, not industrious, who's not contributing, right, and there's this resentment. And the um, interesting thing, just to add to that, is that East Germans, of course, have this very different idea of their own society, which is precisely that they are, um, well, despite all the economic problems, but th that already, and this is this is what Klaus Offer shows in his work, that the East German identity already during GDR times was very much centered around economic achievements. So um, that's an interesting tension here. A real disconnect in how East Germans yeah. see themselves and how West Germans perceive them. Right. So I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, your respondents. So how did you identify individuals in the Czech Republic and East Germany? And you've focused on or you focus on engineers and healthcare professionals. So can you talk a little bit about why you chose those categories of workers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So so basically um, in this book, I, I try to capture experiences of what we might call the emerging middle class, um, which is, of course, not a homogenous block. Um, and so, um, well, I want to start by saying so that there's, there's this great sociological research that I also draw on. It's not very well known outside of outside the boundaries of our discipline, but it, it's a it's life life course research for post socialist socialist societies, which shows, for instance, for the East German case that it was really crucial what level of skills, what gender, ethnicity, a or age a person was in 1989. So these factors really shaped a person's life chances during the 90s and, and, and later even. 
So um, I can. So I'm using this kind of as a um, the, the social structural insights to choose two professions that had a different point of departure in the early 90s, if you want to call it like that, um, because it allows me to kind of be more systematic about their life chances in that sociological way, but also to look at uh, how they narrate these experiences of change. And so engineers were more likely to move up the ladder because their skills were in demand, but they also experienced economic disruptions, possibly, whereas healthcare workers uh, might not have seen much social advancement, um, also because of the the weakening of the healthcare system, especially in, in the Czech case, but they had job security, more job security. And there's also a gender difference here. Um, and there's also, and that is something that I'm interested in the book as well, there's a difference in how these professionals they they like they view the world they view society through also um their economic experiences uh so engineers typically they want to create something they want to design effective products and they they tend to think that the market is actually the best way to to distribute resources in society whereas healthcare workers want to perform good care and uh, it's clear that they cannot rely on the market to do this. And so this this different social position also shapes their ideas about society in a way and about how they think about uh, the market and justice, which is kind of what I'm then trying to theorize. Yeah, and also citizenship and notions of what the welfare state provides. And, exactly. Uh, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So one of the aims of your book is to examine the moral and affective dimensions of economics, and you employ the concept of economic deservingness throughout the book. So can you elaborate on this? What insights does such an approach offer uh, into the post-1989 transformations? Sure. So um, as I mentioned earlier, so there are all these structural changes in, in the post-socialist transformation period. And so... And I find in these interviews that despite the structural nature of these changes, uh, people often tend to think about the outcomes of the transformation in terms of individual factors, and in particular in terms of um, moral properties, such as um, a person having a good character or like being hardworking. Or so there are all these moral ideas floating around by which through which people make sense of economic outcomes. And there is also a strong tendency to hold others individually accountable, accountable for um, things like being unemployed for a longer period of time or somehow failing in, 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 in not not making it kind of somehow not not being able to get back on their feet, which is a kind of a phrase that keeps on reappearing also in this context. And so deservingness, the concept, it comes, it comes from the welfare literature. Um, I use it in a bit of a broader sense here. Um, I use it in a way to, to try to capture how people think about economic outcomes in moral terms, uh, like deserving a certain job or a certain lifestyle status, deserving what you've achieved, but also um, 
trying to capture how people think about the social relationships around them in terms of deserving certain people around you and also in a moral sense because there is and this is kind of what i what i kind of extract from from my from my interviews there's a very strong um moral claim here a claim of having a legitimate economic biography that people lay on their social environment so they want others to share and support their own assumptions about the ways in which economic worth is also a matter of personal worth so basically this this shifting back and forth between the economic and the social or this strong interconnection between those two two levels to me that that is how people actually experienced at that time so it's 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 kind of hard to even separate the two in the first place and i think that the the, the concept of economic deservingness allows us to kind of get at that including some other wonderful theories from economic sociology and others but yes so that's basically why i use it here and that's kind of a good transition to your first chapter where you explore work in greater detail. Maybe you can tell our listeners a bit about why work is so important for understanding the story of transition or more aptly these stories of transformation, right? So so why is work so fundamental to East Europeans? Yes, so sure. So there's excellent research out there on Poland especially. Um and I have in mind the work for instance, by Adam Mozowicki, by Joanna Wasiniak, Alexander Lake. And they demonstrate that people, so they, they did like biographical interviews in a way like I did, but but even reconstructing the biographical arc in an even, well, more generational, fuller sense in that, in that way. And so they find that people care a lot about two issues, um, or let's put it like this. So the, the experience of the post-1989 period um, is centered around two main concerns, which is work and social relationships, basically. So, and this is this is kind of interesting because it, the political dimension, which we like to think about oftentimes, you know, freedom, system change, the political, the, the institutional things like that. So so basically what we see from these biographical interviews is that work and social relationships are two issues that are really important, really close to people's concerns. Um, and then, so I'm, I'm kind of using this as a point of departure here for, um, for understanding people's uh, position and and then also, I mean, in this chapter that we you mentioned, um, which is also a historical chapter where I'm, I'm basically also writing about the meaning of work in, in late socialist society, especially in late socialist Czechoslovakia and uh, the German Democratic Republic, and then also in the 90s. It's interesting to find um, what are continuities as well as differences and in terms of the continuities um i think it's it's really interesting to look at the there's literature and social history uh that basically well as i mentioned off uh, but also others who talked a lot about uh these societies being these kind of work centered societies really and also the and this is important the late socialist societies um even like because they have basically lost mo like the, the the communist parties at that time had basically lost most of its 
political credibility, the vision of like a, like um, a socialist future was basically dead after 1968, as Marcy Shore, for instance, writes about um, in her work. But so, and, and what these what, what what happens is that we have like so these societies that that kind of try to even like wield a moral idea of work as a tool of power. So that, and that, that is something that it comes out from the work of to- authors like Thomas Lindenberger or Michael Pullman, basically showing that this idea that, that individuals who are lazy, who are unwilling to work, um, of course, there's also a racial dimension to this kind of talk, but we, we really see it sort of increasing already in the late socialist period. We see people going to jail on these charges a lot like the numbers of people being persecuted increasing in the, in the late socialist period so so basically that is the, and that's the moment that's sort of the that's the atmosphere the late socialist social conservatism which is very much concerned with the moral idea of work so you're part of the community as a worker and if you are unwilling to work then you're kind of excluded from the community. And that is far removed from any kind of class-based idea of society. Um, And I think, so this is really interesting to think about, okay, how does this specific, I call it, again, with a reference to sociological theory here, the moral background or like this, basically this pattern of thinking about the economy thinking about what does what does the being productive even mean in those societies in the late 80s and then how does that translate into the experience of the 90s i think it gives us a more um, imminent perspective of how people perceive the changes in the 90s so and as you know from your work that it's not like people need someone to come and tell them who they are and, and what it means to be a good worker or not so so they already know that so they have a they have a history in that sense and so it's precisely that history that they use to make sense of those changes in the 90s as well this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And they're also, of course, grappling with two different political conceptualizations or ideological conceptualizations of work, right? So the one that they Mm. were accustomed to under state socialism and then the one under capitalism, which are quite different, right? And I think you very persuasively um, and effectively demonstrate how individuals take bits and parts from the previous system to make sense of the post-1989 system, right? So this notion of egalitarianism, um, this notion of how the importance of skill and merit and hard work, but also then how they depart from that and how they're able to integrate market elements into their conceptualization and, and notions of competition and, of course, deserving this, right? So if, if you are industrious, then you are deserving of this, right? In a different way than you would have been under state socialism, because, of course, the, the monetary difference is uh, under capitalism. Exactly. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about memory. So in chapter two, you examine memory and it's a central part of your analysis throughout the book. 
Can you talk a little bit about how memory shapes people's understanding and experience of the present? So how do their memories uh, of the 90s and even earlier influence how they make sense uh, of themselves, the system, and others? Sure. So memory, we typically like to think about, or we use it in sociology as well, to think about um, the memory of political events of mass violence, of course, of authoritarianism. So memory, it kind of comes from a different realm, the political realm as a concept, I would say. And we don't have a lot of theoretical attempts to think about memory in the economic realm. So, um, and I think we still have a lot of work to do in that area. I'm not, so what I'm trying to do here is to, well, try to theorize it on different levels, but um, basically um, memory here, so there are different levels, of course. So one is um, the memory of the 90s and, and not of, of so much of, of the late socialist period, but really of the 90s, of that period of um, rupturing change. So people um, losing their jobs, um, taking new jobs, being unemployed for a certain period of time, or sometimes a couple of times, and moving somewhere else, um, things like that. Um, the kind of formative economic experiences of that period, um, uh, how people actually remember those and whether they use a kind of more collective language to make sense of them or not. And so one thing that I encountered was when I did my research, when I when I first did these interviews, um, there was still less of a, a media attention to that period in Germany in particular. And so um, it would be really interesting now to, to, now to go back and, and maybe compare how, let's say, if you have like more of a media attention that actually we have people... Um, articulating certain stories um, that also circulate in the public sphere. And then that's, of course, a dynamic of memory that it's never just individual. It's also what people kind of pick up and they relate their own experience to these collective um, patterns of meaning. So memory is in that way, I, I would say it's it's first it's something personal, but it's, but it's already, it's kind of charged with this kind of more social dimension. And then second, uh, what I also find, and then in terms of economic memory, what is really important here is that it's, um, it's also a way of, oh, well, remembering the past, remembering someone's past is a way of recognizing someone's past. And, um, and it's a way of positioning oneself in a social space in the present. So, um, and that's why social relationships in the past and in the present are so important here because, well, they change during the 90s. There's a lot of change in in, in relationships. And we can talk about it in a, in a bit like friendship ties, like coworkers, um, family ties. Um, and the fact that people kind of, form these these communities of, of 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 shared experiences and also shared economic experiences um and then you, you we also see like these ties changing and then the, the question is okay how do people um whose past do they kind of feel close to whose past do they recognize in this moment 
and where does they where does that um lead them and what kind of story do they tell about the 90s in the end so to so in this way so memory has this this kind of ethical implication here um and yes so, and i think in particular also i mean these kind of more subtle work related economic contexts where these are these might not be about like the big political issues even though of course the memory of the uh, for instance, the secret police and people's involvement in the secret police is really a really important part of that story here. But but there's also a memory of the of the '90s in terms of these economic changes and people's experiences, biographical experiences of that. Yeah, I think making distinctions between the political right, the the, the political changes and the political reverberations and people's. I don't want to say people aren't political because I think in a way everything is political, but how people are apprehending and making sense of things, there's there's often, a, and experiencing things, there's often a disconnect. And so this is related also in part to memory. You argue that rather than a big break, such as 1989, right, people experience these small ruptures. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that because, again, this is something in the literature we often think of these these big dates, right? 1989, mm. uh, the the Velvet Divorce in 1993, right? And can you tell us how, by focusing on these small ruptures, we get a different portrait of the changes that happened and of people's daily lives and maybe of politics as well? Yeah, sure. And actually, I would like to answer your question or begin answering it by just um, kind of recounting this nice little episode from not my book, but uh, Muriel Blaif's oral history, where she recounts how she talked to a, an elderly woman in, in the Czech borderlands and asked her, so how did you experience the Velvet Revolution, the 1989 revolution in Czechoslovakia? And this woman, she replies, oh, yes, it was, but it was not here. It was just in Prague. So basically, the disconnect between her experience, or let's say the temporality of the big event and then maybe what the the changes are for her and a lot of people also talk a lot about continuities and not just about change here and so trying to make sense of what how so this is a period of massive social change um but the question is of course how do people actually what is their own way of of making temporal sense of of these events um and so when when we think about like their economic experiences, for instance, um, small ruptures the, are, for instance, um, people's uh, fear of becoming unemployed in the early 90s, which was very widespread. So um, because especially in the East German case, we had so many uh, of these large uh, former socialist um, firms closing down and people losing their jobs. Um, and so, it, it, of course, losing your job in that moment is a, is a, obviously, that's, that, that's a rapture. Um, but then also the kind of social situation that people were in, if they happened to not lose their job, but, but others around them did, that is also a small rapture. That is something that people bring up um, when they talk about this time. And for also, for instance, uh, an, a healthcare worker, in, in an East German healthcare worker who 
when I went and talked to her, she showed me uh, basically a book. She kept a record of the number of people who were working, her co-workers in the, in the 90s. And so she basically, every month, she kind of kept a record of who left because, and that was actually linked to the fertility drop in the 90s in East Germany, which then recovered. Um, but she had this very sort of vivid um well chronology of 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 like her the co-workers around her and that's often something like these all these structures they kind of became smaller and people had to sort of rearrange their and uh, their relationships um in these new economic structures basically and that a lot of these processes are then um remembered as I would say, uh, as I call them as economic, uh, small ruptures, small ruptures in terms of an economic memory of the period. And it's not necessarily a negative thing, but uh, it's also interesting to think about how much agency people think they had when they went through these ruptures. And that's, I think, where we find very different accounts. Um, some people kind of have uh, a portray um, coping with these ruptures is really driven by their own, well, commitment and agency very strongly. And others tend to point to uh, more contextual factors that actually then determined what came next, basically. So that's, an, that's already an interesting difference when in the way people talk about these small ruptures. I also want to say, I mean, this is something, this is something one person told me and I, I found it quite, well, important to think about it but she basically she said and this was also someone working at a an elderly care uh, institution she said that the thing that she basically remembers from the early 90s is the moment of having her boss tell her that she has to perform well at work because otherwise someone else is going to take her job so her labor is superfluous it she can be replaced and then she said oh and so and then you looked out of the window and no one was basically lining up for these jobs so basically she already knew that this was not true because no one wanted to add a lot of people were had to enter healthcare coming from other jobs like for instance from uh, education child care you had a lot of people transitioning into the care sector in the early 90s in east germany but on the other hand, there was like there was a new, well, a new in a way relationship between like capital and labor in that sense, and that is also something that people actually remember, right? So, and there's there are stories associated with that too. Yeah, that's actually a perfect uh, seg to my next question, which is about notions of skill and how they mm -hmm. change after 1989. So you have all these structural changes, uh, obviously a new economic system, but you have people who are accustomed to the way in which skills were defined and validated under communism working within this new system. So how does this impact respondents' experiences? Uh, you talk a bit about economic humiliation. So how does this mm -hmm. all relate? Yes, and I should say that skills, of course, um... So there's, again, there are large differences also among the my respondents, the people I um, was able to talk to in terms of, you know, their education already in, in late socialist uh, GDR or Czechoslovakia. Um, 
for instance, having a higher education degree, of course, was a, a privilege and it also helped people um, in the 90s to kind of more to transition into the new society more smoothly. Um, and so there's some variation already in in in, in people's levels of skills um, in my in my own sample here. Um, and so I think the interesting um, moment about skills is, and this is something that I'm again I'm I'm drawing on on Polish sociology here, um, is that skills are there there's there's a market price basically to skills. So there you you basically there's a labor market that um, puts a price tag on on a certain skills, and and then, then at the same time there's kind of a biographical reality and and a reflexive approach to skills, whereby skills are intrinsic they are what people they ha people have a certain idea of achieving something they want to perform well they have a certain of course professional ethics and this is of course when we look at the example of uh, healthcare work in fact um the sense of this illusionment, the sense of having one's skills not properly recognized in the 90s, especially in the East German case, uh, that I also encountered in these interviews, um, kind of, it took on a new meaning during the pandemic when a lot of these debates about moral injury in healthcare, um, at least like in 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 Germany and in other places, I think also in the US, there was this debate, of course. So, and this idea that there's something, so people aren't, aren't actually able to do their work according to how they were trained to do it and according to a professional ethics. And so this is not primarily about how much they get paid. Of course, that's really important. And it's not about how society tells them your work is really awesome. Like we're gonna clap. <laughs> Um, like after you're exhausted, um, but it's about how people um, have a sense that they can actually perform their work in a way that they think is it's a professional um, and what the professional standards and in healthcare work there are so many so many nuances in the way uh, these professional standards work. So it's really something it's hard to see from the outside. But when people tell talk, tell these stories about what happened also during the 90s, if, for instance, in like the, um, you had changes in the healthcare system, of course, in the Czech Republic, it was pretty dramatic in terms of underfunding and early privatization of the healthcare system and really like it's kind of dysfunctional system emerging already in the early 90s and east germany in germany in general you had um the like major hospitals were privatized in part a little bit later around the turn of the century but then of course the commodification of healthcare very much affected people's ability to to do the work this is not just a story of um kind of things becoming so much worse it's 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 really a very sort of ambiguous process and people rem remember it that way so a lot of people also talk about you know the new technologies in the 90s um which really helped them to to take better care of their patients um they didn't have to lift heavy materials or or even patients 
um, anymore or that like the hygiene standards were very, very much improved, things like that. So, uh, and also of course, the dom whole domain of ethics and basically um, a human rights approach to certain fields of healthcare, I mean, all fields of healthcare, but especially in fields like psychiatry and, and other areas in which we know that there were like these gross violations of, of human rights and also politically motivated um, abuses of the system in, in, in late social, in, in the socialist systems. And so, so it's an ambiguous process, but yes, what I am um, basically in terms of skills, what I think it's, it's important to, to again, see is that there's this kind of moral idea um, that people have when they talk about their skills and when they make sense of the, what they're good at. And, and that is part of their, of these, it's a, it's a crucial part of these economic memories. And maybe one last sentence, um, which concerns a different situation, a, like a, a contrasting situation almost between the East German and the Czech experience in that regard is, is really that I've, so a lot of my Czech interview uh, partners in, in from healthcare were kind of um, disillusioned in the sense that they, a lot of people said, okay, we, we actually never really expected things to become so much better. So we, our profession was already not very highly regarded in mm. like in, in, in Czechoslovak socialism. And then in the nineties, of course, there was no money. The state was basically retreating from any kind of public um, sector work. Um, and that's a massive problem, but people, it seems like they didn't have so many, like the expectations weren't that high. Whereas in the East German case, there are stories, a lot of stories um, in which people convey their sense of disappointment and anger about the fact that they were basically not allowed to perform the kind of work that they were trained to do as nurses, as like um, to being trained in the East German uh, socialist system. And then, and then basically transitioning to the West German healthcare system with its many more insurance and legal regulations, uh, which meant that some of these tasks like drawing blood were well, I mean, the, the competencies were, were changed. So people were, some people were not and for a certain period of time. And then there was also this back and forth sometimes where people were, again, they, they could do it um, on the basis of, the, um, of their credentials. But then again, insurance requirements changed. And then, so they were not allowed to do it anymore. And so these kinds of stories about, and because they're perceived as, as basically the state the West German state coming in and telling people you're not qualified to do this kind of work, and that's that's sort of the the the, the perceived and the remembered violation of a kind of professional competence in this moment, which is a very strong, and people people have a very strong memory, a very emotional memory of that.
Right, which is different than in other parts of Eastern Europe where you don't have reunification, right? Because there, yeah. maybe you have outsiders coming in, right, from the West, uh, NGOs and such training, but it's it's a different type of dynamic. And that doesn't mean that people don't feel less humiliated, but it's still, it's not your own country, men and women doing it. So different dynamic. Right. Mm. So I wanted to move on to chapter three, which is entitled Deserving and Undeserving Others. Um, and so I was wondering if you could provide a couple of examples from your respondents about how this idea of deserving-ness uh, is, is expressed, right? And, and who deserves what, uh, why do they deserve it, and who isn't deserving? Yes, thank you. Okay, so I think I want to start answering your question by uh, mentioning a puzzle, really, that also animates my own work in, in that like uh, chapter. Um, and that is kind of tied to this larger question of deservingness in post-socialist societies. Um, and I also want to, I mean, I want to emphasize that I don't think this is, I think there's still a lot of research to be done here. Um, that's why it's a puzzle. So I'm not the person who solves it, but it's, it's, it's really, it's really there. And so on the one hand, we know from, from survey studies that people, in these societies that have experienced uh, the breakdown of, of socialism and transition to market societies, we know that there's this there's um, a sense like and a widespread egalitarianism in the sense that people are uh, more ready to support a stronger state. They they want the state to redistribute. Um, they maybe accept pensions, insurance, you know, healthcare, these kinds of things. So they are they they are less willing to accept higher levels of uh, market inequalities than in, in some Western societies that have been capitalist for a, a much longer period of time. Um, so on the one hand, we have this kind of what we call egalitarian ideas. On the other hand, there's also survey evidence that shows that um, some of in some of these societies, and che the Czechia, for instance, is clearly one of them, the number of people who think that um, individuals who are poor, for instance, only have themselves to blame for this uh, plight that they find themselves in, is actually even higher than in some of the Western European countries. So this is a puzzle in a way, because it's... And then also, I mean, we could also say the rise of right-wing populism in Eastern Europe after the financial crisis or even earlier than that is another, let's say, a challenge to the egalitarianism assumption here. Um, but so I think it's important to say, okay, so apparently people are also not very consistent on these issues. So it's maybe we shouldn't call them either like the one or the other. And the kind of the the way forward is to listen to how they themselves tell these kinds of stories, um, because that's those are the kinds of stories that they tell about the '90s as well. Um, and so, on the one hand, people, and I, I know also you have also you write about this as well in your work, Jill. So I know that so people are resilient. They are proud of their economic powers, if you want to call it like that. So on the other hand, there are all these legacies of communities and, and being part of these, these firms, especially the solidarity, basically. There are these strong legacies as well. 
Um, and so now the question is, how do people actually tell the stories? And how can we f identify elements in those stories that, that help us understand what, what is the important variation here? So that's what I guess that's what I'm interested in. So for instance, so one example, I talked to a, a person who is a successful engineer um, and he tells a story about a former friend who in his view, he was uh, too lazy, kind of not willing to basically take up the kind of work that he, this other person was was qualified to do. So really the the way he portrays this former friend is that he was um, um, just unwilling to do it. And then there, there was this difficulty of maintaining this relationship. Um, he talks about how this person, how they kind of tried out, tried to meet up, but then it kind of didn't go anywhere. So they, at some point, they just stopped meeting. Um, and he then he say, also says this interesting thing about, so kind of extrapolating from this story uh, and saying, okay, so now I understand if someone who was unemployed in the early 90s basically um, is unhappy about it and has a right to complain. But after a certain period of time, and he says, I think he says like after 10, after five or 10 years, you can't blame it on the system. So, so, and what he's doing here, he's, he's basically, he says, okay, now there was this time in the early nineties when, you know, everything was turned upside down and we were all unemployed. And then, but after a certain moment, we all had to basically get our stuff together. Um, and that is a very powerful narrative, I would say, because what we also know, I mean, from the sociological research is that, in fact, what happened to people in the early 90s was so decisive, it even made it harder for them if they were unemployed in the early 90s to actually then, you know, it has this kind of cascading effects. Um, so it's it's not like uh basically that's not that's not how the, the 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 transformation worked as a kind of social structural change that there was just this one period of hardship and then after that everything was basically a matter of your own um of your own ambition or willpower or whatever but these kinds of ways of thinking about it, are, I think, are really important because they really and they point us towards how people make sense of this these very sort of sticky problems um, by telling stories. So when so so basically, what I'm what I'm trying to do in this chapter and more generally is to say. We know that people, when when they make sense of their own position in society, they compare themselves to others. There's all this social psychological research, but um, it's it's really it's really even more interesting to go and and see who are they telling stories about, basically, and who's what is the outcome of that story. So, and these are narratives. They're often tragic narratives in that sense. So they they end with some kind of failure or they are narratives that end with some overcoming failure, basically. So that's um, heroic, maybe. Yes. So there are also genres associated with this kind of talk about deservingness. And I think, I'm not saying that this is not the final word here, but it's, I think, especially in light of the fact that we have so much survey 
data on this problem of how do people think about deservingness, I think it's really important to to document people's kind of stories, qualitative um, evidence about it. To what degree do you think these narratives are aren't influenced by the broader political discourse about, you know, pulling oneself up by their bootstraps and taking initiative and advantage of the opportunities? And to what degree do you think their continuities with the pre-1989 period? Because, of course, you had crafty and lazy and corrupt people under socialism as well, right? People who were mm-hmm. leeching off of other people. So... Do you, do you see continuities or do you see kind of more of a rupture here and in, in how they're conceptualizing deservingness? Yes, I mean, I think they con- I think there are a lot of continuities. Um, but also, I think that the continuity itself is part of the the social constellation in a sense that what I find in some of these interviews is that people tell me that they that this is how they themselves thought about these things. And they actually didn't change their mind. Um, so, for instance, one person, another successful engineer, he um, he talks about how um, he was always basically this. He always had this kind of entrepreneurial spirit already in uh, the late socialist GDR, and and then his friends and the people who who, who were close to him uh, at the time of the revolution. Um, some of them, well, they all pretended to share that attitude, but then some of them actually turned out it didn't. So they were, again, they were kind of breaking away because in his story, because they were, it turns out that they were the ones who were not kind of, um, well, ready to to act according to these shared views, shared moral views. Um, so it's, it's very often that actually people tell stories about their own view being consistent in that sense so it's not and i was i was in a little bit surprised as well because in the, in the east german case especially um because there's even a concept in the literature that says okay there's east german exceptionalism um that basically holds that even people who are economically successful east germans tend to um reject these kind of individualistic explanations um because they don't want to come across as West German, <laughs> which, yes, that is also something that I find. But on the other hand, they also have, like, they, 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 they have a very strong story um, about their own, basically, and, and already, like, going back to their earlier careers uh, in the 80s or 70s or whenever, about uh, a, more of a consistency in, 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 in their attitude towards work and towards getting things done. So... Yeah. And then, of course, going back to your question, as we also talked about, I think that there's also that there is uh, this very strong moral moralizing kind of legacy um, that people can draw on to make sense of basically the the 90s, um, which is which is which is really also at least a deeply shaped by these kind of late socialist moral ideas about who is a worthy, productive subject, member of the community, or who is not. So I wanted to talk a little bit about social relationships, which is the topic of chapter four. And I found this really interesting. It's your longest chapter. And there's some incredibly rich stories here. 
So can you talk a little bit about how economic change affects social relationships, right? So you have these stories where individuals had these he's, these relationships with people under socialism, right? But then they start to rupture or maybe they become stronger uh, after 89. And, and what are the reasons for this? And I know one of the case studies was, was Lenka and maybe you want to touch on some other stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So the chapter we just talked about is more about, you know, people telling these stories and uh, not so much the meaning of these people, the relationship to these people. And chapter four is really trying to also think about the the meaning of the relationships themselves as they changed during the 90s. Um, because I think this is quite important to to take that into consideration of course. So I think, as I mentioned earlier, it's I think it's really productive to think about if you want to hear what people think about society, we want to hear how they compare themselves to others and things like that. But if we, if we also, if you want to know even more about like their, their social location and their perceived sort of uh, place in larger society, I think it's even richer to to talk to people about their closer social ties. Um, and so this is what I'm trying to do in this chapter. And it's basically it also uh, informed by the work of a philosopher called uh, Avishai Magalit, who talks about memory and writes about memory and 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 about memory in relationships. And he also writes a lot about friendship because to him, friendship is the one social relationship that is kind of the most the purest, uh, based on on maybe the purest idea of equality. Um, And so, and then the question is what happens to that relationship of equality as people change or conditions change, things like that. And so, um, and that he argues that this is a question of memory too. So remembering someone else's past um, remembering the history of the relationship, remembering the equality of the relationship. So these are the the kinds of the moments that kind of sustain a friendship tie. Um, and so this is kind of what I'm what I'm looking at here: how people talk about these changes, and also losing friends, of course. So that's the idea: is that um, well, people experienced a lot of changes. And I should say that not all of these changes are like dramatic stories of uh, loss in that sense, um, but it's a lot, a lot of them also, that is what happens if people move away, they get new jobs, and there's uh, a lot of evidence in social network studies, uh, subfield of sociology about how people's relationships change over time and they lose ties, and that's a kind of a normal process. But then again, it's something that in this in this kind of moment, the '90s, this kind of rupture and crisis moment, and people are kind of having to reinvent themselves. So uh, there is definitely there's there's more to that, and there are these kind of moral, deeply moral problems associated with changing social associations, with losing people, with basically also getting rid of people because they do not represent one's uh, own 
values anymore. Okay, so now I've I've kind of talked again about the theories here, but um, I know we, we wanted to talk about some of the examples here. Um, so yes, you mentioned Lenka. So her story, so Lenka is an, a Czech healthcare worker and she tells a story about basically losing this friend of hers um, in the early 90s. So this was a close friend of hers and what happened is that she talks about how this how this person started to have opinions. There was also a social mobility difference between the two, but she is very she insists that this is not the the, the problem here. So it's not the fact that this other person um, suddenly had more money and than before, but it's rather the way this person kind of uh, deals with this difference and 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 also kind of starts behaving she tells she talks about how she, this person starts behaving in a way that makes her feel like a pleb so like a like a low class person and that is clearly an injury to this bond of equality um it kind of this other person started to disrespect the relationship of equality and and then she talks about how she wanted to stay normal so that was kind of what she wanted and she that's what she expected also from this friend and uh, this is something that it reappears again and again so that is it's i think it's, it's kind of connected to this idea that you're going through maybe also periods of economic hardship and it's a moral value to say okay you stayed normal so it's you did not start that you did not change you did not develop all kinds of opinions on the other hand of course then that's the interesting thing and some of my respondents also pointed out this problem is that of course a lot of people changed so it's not it's not as if people actually stayed the same but there's a certain moral claim to being consistent to to basically well uh, of course not abandoning abandoning and it's not not making them feel like uh they're not starting to ignore others, obviously. I mean, just not being a bad friend in that sense, but it's more than that. It's it's also interpreting one's one's relationship to this material world and and trying to navigate a a relationship of equality in it. So and basically I find stories like Lenka, but there are also stories like Ursula, who is a an East German. I talked to her about she went through a number of unemployment experiences and she never managed to to find a permanent position uh, she was trained as a technician basically and then she was unlucky in the 90s and then when i talked to her this she was close to being retired and she she never had a job for more than i think it was 2 years um so basically this was an entire trajectory of of unemployment phases of unemployment um and then for her this is also an important issue of course the question of how others around her um reacted to her situation supported her or did not support her and she actually tells a story of of kind of um this friend of hers who they they managed to um, kind of restore that relationship because as she, as she says uh, this because this other person kind of at some point understood what was happening to her and kind of returns 
and 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 it's not that she apologizes, but it's kind of a little bit of a different story in the sense that there's this kind of reunion after after many years. So um, maybe I'd, one last point here is that so I, I find stories like this by people who talk about uh, people who like former friends who they were basically um, losing because this other person experienced social upward mobility. So this could we could call this a kind of bottom up kind of uh, tie dissolution and and there's also the other way around where people and i mentioned this earlier cases where people in a sense had this desire to i want to say purify and that that is because that is really close to what these stories convey the meaning that they convey purify sort of their social environment of certain people who contradict their values because they were not ready to um they were maybe challenging their new market activities or whatever their their sort of their ways of 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 embracing uh, market society. And what's interesting here is that I, I often find that there are these economic issues associated with this. So, and there are, of course, as I mentioned much earlier in our conversation, there are some political stories here, but there are a lot of these economic stories. So the economic differences, they are a real challenge to to people's um, close ties. That's basically what I find here. I found it also interesting that there was the, the case of the man, I can't remember his name, but he and his group of friends continued to nurture a friendship with one of their colleagues, even though that individual was earning a lot less and was downwardly mobile just because they felt like their relationship shouldn't be defined by economics. And he was even insulating him from discussions that would make him feel uncomfortable, right? So he told one of his friends not to talk about how much he traveled and all the things he was able to buy, right? Because he wanted that other friend who was not so well off, um, who was pretty poor, actually, to not feel uncomfortable. So that there were there was also this sense of solidarity between the two yes. periods. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so, maybe maybe I can just add one sentence sure. to this. So because it's um, what he is doing is he says we can only talk about the the past. We can't talk about the present so much uh, because the past is the shared is that shared space. So that's what we share. So in a way, this you could say that this is a form of maybe nostalgia, but. I'm I'm a little bit um, skeptical to, there are so many of these ways in which the temporality and the economic constellations in the past and in the present interact here. So the, I wouldn't call it nostalgia. It's really a form of relationship work, of course. Um, and also telling someone's story. This is something that this person also is doing in his own story, that he basically has a solidarity is something that, that also shapes his own narrative of his own economic experience of the 90s so and that's i found this really fascinating to to see yeah he's representing himself in a particular way and one that you know he's not so concerned with status right he's for yeah. him a friendship is something deeper than that so i wanted to move on to your epilogue now which is entitled how right-wing populists capture deservingness and of course your book is not about populism so i don't want to dwell too long on this but Maybe you can talk a little bit about how the case studies analyzed in your book, so those reflections by your respondents, 
point to how populists seek uh, often successfully to capitalize on people's distrust with the political system, their perception uh, that notions of justice and morality have been abandoned. So maybe you can talk a little bit about this. Sure. So I think what's what's kind of one thing that I also mentioned in the beginning, um, what's crucial to think about is how do people understand economic change? Um, to what extent do they think about it as a problem, as a moral problem, in a sense that 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 someone's personal qualities are in a way aligned with um, their economic outcomes. So this is important, I think, because um, that's that's the way populists talk about the economy. I think so. If we if we listen to well, so here I, my case studies, of course, there's like the East German IFD or the Czech Anno, but we could also look at the Polish piece or to Hungary. Um, and th there's a language about uh, talking about like economic change that is very much, it's it's critical of the Western capitalism. Yes, we know that. But at the same time, it doesn't abandon like capitalism in a sense. It's, it's, it, it kind of, it, it 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 more like it argues that um there's a that it's a corruption and understood in a moral sense corruption mm -hmm. um a corruption of of a certain purity of social relationships and economic conditions um and um it's it's basically a kind of pre-political argument about who is um who has a right to certain outcomes right and then we can see how the populist discourse in central eastern european societies it's often um well promoted by elites of course who have these kinds of trajectories in the sense that they are the ones they've they've seen economic ruptures they have been disappointed with the west um there's all this well as you know great work about this um and i think it's important to and try to understand and i'm far from the only person doing this but uh, what kind of experiences does it resonate with when they do it when they talk like that um and i think it's also it's important i mean there was a time when we that there was like a bit of a debate about you know east germans they're so nostalgic for for the for the social for socialism for the GDR, um, but that didn't quite make sense in terms of who the IFD is, right, in Germany. Um, and now we have more research on the way they criticize privatization, on the one hand, but on the other hand, what they're doing is that they're actually arguing against too much state regulation. They they have this idea of a pure market based social order um which is much more in line with um well these kind of economic imaginations in a way that people might develop um from from this time and and, and like as I, again i would argue that it's very much a moralizing way of thinking about economic uh, phenomena but it's 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 really it's also just um it's it's i think I w of course we have to remember that it's it's very much based on 
if you want to call it like that, the the demand side in that sense. So there's there's much more to the rise of populism than that. But it, I think it is important to consider the the political subjectivities that arise from certain ways of talking about the economy, broadly speaking. And of course, so much is about opportunism, right? Um, yes. To what degree do populists actually genuinely believe in all that they preach? Yes. And um, I mean, this is, it, it, honestly, I think it's it's really interesting to actually to think about people, these, and there are studies that look at like populist leaders and their first, their kind of identification with the West and then their alienation from the West and this dynamic and this kind of criticism of capitalism, like, and then the revelation and that, that this is, that this is actually not a market society, but that it, that, that these are actually network based societies, basically. So people get jobs on the basis of networks, right. Which is one of the main critiques that people have, as you know, about socialist societies. And then in right. places like Roma Romania, also, of course, in, in, in the nineties. Um, and this is such a powerful critique um, also of like, capitalism in a way that's so and and i think that that is that is a sentiment that people very well know how to um speak to even in a case like east germany where maybe from an outsider perspective you might think that east germany is based on labor markets and you know people get jobs on the basis of their skills and things like that but but still people have this a strong sense that they are being disadvantaged um, that they are up against these forces of social capital of, and this is not actually capitalism in a sense, this is not actually a market society. And the privatization of the 90s was the, the first instance from in the perspective of, for instance, the IFD, the way it talks about it, the East German, um, well, it's not an East German party, it's very successful in the East of Germany. It's a, the German far right-wing party um, the way they talk about the privatization of the 90s is that they say, okay, this was basically badly implemented state power, but it was not a market. That, that was not the market. That was the, that was basically the West German state messing up the East German economy. And of course, that, that speaks to people um, because it's completely kind of empty of any kind of historical analysis of of like um socialism and the transformation time but it's it's really just a it's more like an argument okay so now we are still governed by those elites who don't even know how to how to kind of install a proper market society similar so, to hungary right and it's yeah. and, and and they can't they can't critique capitalism, the pure capitalism, right? Because if they do, then they'll be then they'll appear as socialists. So they have to embrace capitalism, but right. they can defame their predecessors by saying, well, that wasn't the true capitalism you were practicing. You were still blending elements. There was a lot of corruption. Some of those elites had been communists. And so, you know, we're going to purify the system. And I find that that fascinating, this, this kind of um the discourses that's used, right? Cleansing, purification, very much reminiscent of what the communists were using as well, purging. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, also this idea of no, who is normal in society, right? Yes. We just had a this debate about that in Austria from all places. But yes, I mean, that's, that is also, of course, the Czechoslovak, um, the tragic part of Czechoslovak history, normalization. Yeah. So we have come to the end of the interview. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. I really enjoyed your book and looking forward to assigning it in my class, right? my Marks to McDonald's class and um, <laughs> seeing what my students have to say about it. Um, but I have one last question for you. So maybe you can just briefly tell us about what you're currently working on. Yes. Um, okay. So first, let me also really thank you for this. This was an, just a great opportunity and I also enjoyed it very much. So thank you so much. And so what I'm currently working on is um, to use, well, well, to, to use a kind of similar theories, maybe to think about the climate transformation in Europe, um, because again, we are going through major economic changes here. Um, and I want to I'm interested in like the, the the Central Eastern European, the Western European, the Southern European perspective on how people also remember earlier cases of economic change to make sense of the climate transformation, whatever that means. Again, it's, it means different things to different people, um, but that is what I'm trying to come up with for a new research project right now. Fascinating. And of course, you have an edited volume coming out. Uh, so we're looking forward to that as well. Yes. Great. Okay. Well, thank you again. Thank you.